I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. If you're like me, you probably spent at least one night of the holiday season watching Love Actually, a 20-year-old tearjerker of a movie that featured the hilarious breakout performance by Bill Nye as an aging irreverent rocker with a heart of gold trying to win a Christmas music contest. That role earned Nye a BAFTA. Today, there are more rave reviews, Oscar buzz, and a Golden Globe nomination for Nye for his performance in Living. In this conversation, first recorded for Washington Post Live on January 6th, Nye talks about how he landed the role in Living, the enduring power of Love Actually, (laughs) and why he doesn't like watching himself in movies. Uh, I gave up watching myself a long time ago as a practical measure because it undermines me. I don't see what other people see. I used to think that, you know, either people were being kind when they complimented me on anything or else they were, you know, dumb. It is a a, a thrill for me to be able to talk to you about a lot of things, but we have to talk about how this movie came about, which, correct me if I'm wrong, it starts with you and and novelist Kazuo Ishigura, the 2017 Nobel uh, laureate in literature, sharing a taxi after a dinner party? What happened? Yeah, I went to dinner, and uh, in fact, I fell asleep on the sofa and missed dinner, which was a bad time to fall asleep because... I knew that the other guest uh, was going to be the Nobel laureate, uh, Kazuo Ishiguro, who I didn't know. But at the end of dinner, he and his wife went into a kind of huddle in the taxi. And then they came out of the huddle and they said, we know what your next movie should be. And I said, well, you know, when you're ready, let me know. And uh, it turned out to be this. Uh, He came to England as a uh, five-year-old Japanese boy, and he grew up in England. And Japanese movies and artifacts became very important to him. The most important, possibly, was Ikuru, the Kurosawa movie, from which our movie is derived. Mm -hmm. And and I'm glad you brought brought up that history, because it saves me from having to do it in this next question. And that is, was the idea of you starring in a mo- in a British remake of a Japanese classic, intimidating, enticing, or both? Well, I, in retrospect, I, I think I should have been intimidated, but in fact, I wasn't. I don't know quite why. Maybe I was just having a good a good week. But I, I saw I had I hadn't seen the movie, and then I did watch the movie, and I think possibly I was undaunted because the central performance, which I admired tremendously, is so different from anything that I might come up with. So I didn't feel oppressed by it, and I felt that I was in good hands because I Ishiguro is a great man and a great writer. You know, it, I must have been very good in a previous life because to have someone of his eminence write you a screenplay specifically for you. It's, um, you know, it's an extraordinary development. And also Stephen Woolley, the great English film producer, with whom I've made a couple of other films, I knew I was in, you know, safe hands. You you know, there's another bit of this history here. Um, It's that Ikuru was in part inspired by Leo Tolstoy's 1886 novella, The Death of of Ivan Ilyich. Bill, what about this story do you think makes it resonate with people across three centuries, three countries, and three cultures? I think because the themes are timeless and universal, to use a couple of cliches in one sentence. But, you know, I think, for instance, you know, it's about mortality. It's not a depressing movie. 
I've had my, you know, you're in a hit when you get messages from people you were at school with or people you haven't heard from for 35 years. And people, my phone has been blowing up with messages and they're not, um, you know, they haven't been affected uh, negatively by the movie in, in terms of sadness or it is basically a tragedy, I suppose. But what seems to happen is they hit the street after seeing the movie and they're galvanized and they're inspired to do things. The universal themes are obviously mortality and the other is procrastination, which is perhaps the great corrosive element, certainly in my life. I procrastinate personally. I procrastinate at an Olympic level. I can put off anything you want for as long as you got. <laughs> So uh, I think that that speaks to everyone, and I don't think we've ever been any different. Well, uh, I'm also an Olympian, so I'd be I would be happy to compete with you in the procrastination Olympics. But Bill, tell okay. me about um, what appealed to you about the character, your character, Mr. Williams. It's one thing to have someone write write a character for you, but it's another to play that person. So what was it about about Mr. Williams? I am fascinated by what's called Englishness. I'm sure there's characters like Mr. Williams in every culture, but we take the rap for it. In other words, for a kind of suppressed, suppressed, repressed, uh, cautious, complex system of manners, which uh, you know, under which we we insist on living, and and and, a, and a, an extreme degree of restraint that we require of ourselves. And I find it kind of. I know that you know the psychiatric establishment would probably call it deeply unhealthy um, but there's also something funny about it and it's also I think on occasion it involves heroism and uh, and also I you know I was born I was there I would have been one of the kids in the playground you know I was four years old I think when this film takes place so I was born into that atmosphere but and from an acting point of view it's fun to play to try and express quite a lot with not very much Englishness, that atmosphere, uh, heroism, try, doing a lot by but not do, doing much. Um, these are all all things you've said that touch me here because those are all things I was thinking as I was was watching uh, your beautiful performance in, uh, in Living. Another a word you didn't say, but that stuck with me that I came to my mind was cramped. The cramped nature um, of the famed British Reserve, or as you said, e Englishness, which probably it, it is in every culture, but as you said, the English seem to um, own the avatar for it. But yeah, it's captured, this crampedness that I'm talking about is captured in the film's opening moments as your young co-star, Alex Sharp, um, commutes to his new job for the first time. Let's take a look. introduce you. This is Mr. Peter Wakeling, our new colleague, Mr. Wakeling. Mr. Hart, 
How do you do? How do you do? I'm Mr. Rusbridge. How do you do? How do you do? You're eagerly awaited, Mr. Wakeling. We've been short now nearly two months. Oh, well, I, I hope to make a difference. It may take a week or two, though. Don't worry, old chap. At this time of morning, it's a kind of rule. Not too much fun and laughter. Rather like church. So see, I see what you mean. <laughs> I mean, watching that, watching that scene, I feel like I'm watching myself, you know, Mr. Wakeling, you know, someone who's eager, ready to start the day, wanting to engage with his new colleagues, and then slams into a culture uh, that he has to get used to. I this sort of sets up when we see your character, Mr. Williams, get on the train. And this is to talk more about sort of this repressed demeanor, this this Englishness that we get from Mr. Williams. I mean, is he an avatar of the this post this gloomy post-war Britain? Or am I reading too much into putting too much import on Mr. Williams' character? No, I think if you spoke to Mr. Ishiguro, he would probably agree with that. But from the point of view of um my acting it. Uh, that doesn't really come into my plans. Um, but I, uh, I mean, you know, if I were in, 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 in retrospect, I, this didn't inform the way I acted it or anything, but you know, he, one of the things I uh, held on to was the fact that he was institutionalized in grief. So apart from the, the general cultural phenomenon of that kind of uh, restraint, social restraint, also he, he lost his wife at a very early age. And therefore, uh, that grief, everything about him, his personality has formed around that loss. And he has therefore, I mean, but this is all in retrospect. This is nothing to do with great thoughts I had at the time. Uh, but, you know, that he has, he, he does the absolute minimum in terms of engagement with the rest of the world or with the people in it, because he is fueled by grief and, and I would imagine a great deal of anger at having lost the woman that he loved. <clears throat> You know, he's so institutionalized in grief and in anger that when he gets his own uh, dire medical diagnosis, that he can't even bring himself to tell his own son um, what's happening to him. Um, he can't break free of, of that restraint, but he does restraint in terms of telling his son, but he does break free when after getting that diagnosis, he gets out of London and goes to um, a seaside town where he meets up with a young bohemian who takes him out at night from uh, music venues and bars and uh, showing him around town. And to me, this is the beginning of a transformation for Mr. Williams. And so it got me to wondering, Bill, is this movie about legacy or living, as the title of the movie is, or both? Well, I, if I had to choose, I'd say the latter. I'd say it's about living rather than legacy. I think it's about trying to, having been, having worked in an institution that was dedicated solely to the, uh, the, 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 to preventing things from happening. In other words, institutionalized procrastination. Given this diagnosis, he decides to, to, to actually make something happen. 
But that's not, I don't think, because he needs to leave a legacy of any kind. It's simply that he wants to he wants to live and he wants to have some meaning in uh, from the time he has left. The thing about not telling his son, it's just, you know, part of the requirement of that kind of uh, Englishness was that you didn't trouble anybody with your with your concerns. And you and in the extremity, you would even apologize for dying or certainly for being ill. Um, and 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 it's like he'd heard about this thing called a good time. He'd never had a good time. And, and it amuses me because I'm from England that he goes to Brighton to find it because that's a very period thing. People used to go to Brighton for a good time. I mean, people still go to Brighton for a good time. Uh, and then he sees this guy who looks like he might have had a good time now and again. So and then offers him all this money to to help him, you know, share a good time. I find it very touching and very moving. I want to add. Let me push back on you on on the idea of legacy. And I use that word in giving you the choice, legacy or living, because towards the end of the movie, and we see Mr. Williams break out of procrastination get something done. And then they, we spend the last part of the movie watching how each of his colleagues share with each other things they saw Mr. Williams do that impacted them in such a way that they're like, hey, from now on, we're going to endeavor to be better. And then they, back, they backslide. So I'm wondering, he left a legacy, but this the cramped nature of society, this uh, institutionalized, well, he's got institutionalized grief, but it's the 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 atmosphere of doing the bare minimum is so pervasive that it snuffs out whatever legacy Mr. Williams leaves behind. Or am I reading too much into that part of my analysis of the movie? No, I think you're absolutely correct. But I do think that the, you know, and, and the thing is that the messages I get from people who've seen the movie, they all they are all pretty much the same feeling, which is they hit the street afterwards feeling inspired, feeling galvanized mm -hmm. to do so. Whether or not, like in the movie, that feeling will persist, we you know, we don't know. It's like it's like New Year's resolutions. How long, how did how how far did you get? January the 10th? You know, it's that thing. But hopefully. Um, you know, hopefully uh, it will it will inspire people. Um, uh, and now I've forgotten the rest of your question. <laughs> That's okay. You answered you answered my question because I am also one of those people. After watching, I was inspired, and then you know, lethargy will just take will take over. So, Bill, I'm just is a role like Mr. Williams quiet, intimate, restrained harder to play for you than the big performances you've given us in Love Actually or Pirates of the Caribbean? Um, I don't think, no, it's not harder. I think, you know, I don't, I think they're pretty much in terms of, you know, difficulty, uh, in terms of, um, of what you're suggesting, I think they're pretty much the same. I, uh, I, I do, uh, I am drawn to characters like Mr. Williams, because I do like working that kind of minimally or that closely, um, because it's you know it's it's quite interesting. It's fascinating to see how much you can how much you can get away with or how much you can you, you can express with uh, with how little. Um, I suppose they come probably if I had to choose they 
those kind of roles come I, uh, come easier to me than the larger ones, than the, the more flamboyant. I, I will say that one of my favorite um, performances of yours is in the best exotic Marigold Hotel. And oh, the, relation, the relationship that develops between your character and Dame Judi Dench's character is so charming uh, and so sweet. I watched that movie three times in oh, a week. Wow. It, it wow. was so, so beautiful. But yeah. I think if any folks who recognize you, they recognize you because of, of Love Actually. Did you have any idea that making that movie then, 20 years ago, we'd still be talking about it today? No, I knew that we might be talking about it for a, a while, but no, I don't think anyone was prepared for the way in which it's entered the language and entered the culture of in, in, all, in countries all over the world, everywhere I go. It's very hard to find anybody who hasn't seen Love Actually or doesn't watch it each Christmas. You know, um, it's, uh, it's a marvelous thing. You know, I did think there was a year where I did, uh, I did Underworld, which uh, a Kate Beckinsale vampire, Len Wiseman's vampire werewolf movie, which I figured, and, and, a, and a TV series called State of Play. And, I, and they were all very good parts. And I did think, and then at the end, there was Love Actually. And I thought, if these all go half half decently then uh, it could there might be a the you know a change in the in the weather and uh so it's it was a marvelous thing for me because it changed the way i go to work have, have there been any conversations about a love actually uh remake or a sequel yeah i think they've probably been i, I should think people have crawled across the floor on their hands and knees begging richard curtis I would imagine, I don't know. But we did briefly get back together for a charity, for a comic relief uh, thing. We had a, he wrote uh, some sketches for all, each of the characters. The good news was I could still get into the, those trousers, which was, uh, <laughs> I think. I mean, I never ever thought I'd find myself in Lycra, even, uh, you know, certainly not on camera, but there you are. Um, but yeah, no, it's been, I mean, it's great. The other, the other film, that people talk to me. I think probably more, because I don't own a car and I walk everywhere and I meet lots of people therefore. Uh, and the film that most people talk to me about now by a mile is Richard Curtis's next movie or rather ne uh, last movie as a director, he says, uh, which is called About Time. And lots of people, mostly young people talk to me about that movie. That's kind of, that's also entered the language and it's a, it's a kind of stayer, you know, and people watch that film over and over. So, you know, I'm a lucky guy. Oh, okay. You've given me a, a, a movie that I will have I will have to watch and I'll let you know. If oh, I've yeah. watched it. Think, if I've watched you, it more than a Okay. Well if you like love actually, I I I'd be amazed if you didn't respond to about time. Okay. And and every time I watch Love Actually, I cry in all the same places, no matter how many times I've I've seen it. Bill, we've got an audience question. Um, sure. This is from from Kristen Steven in Virginia. She asks, "You've successfully successfully played heavy, serious roles as well as comedic ones. Do you have a preference, or is it like salty and sweet? You trade off." Um, well, Kristen, it's it's kind of as you suggest. It's salty and sweet. Yeah, I trade off. I mean, I like the I like presenting a moving target, uh, and I was fortunate very early on. 
that I had a, an inspirational agent called Pippa Markham who uh, saw that I wasn't very comfortable playing the roles that I was supposedly um, uh, eligible for, in other words, romantic roles. I was never very comfortable with myself in that regard. So she used to send me up for all kinds of what would be called now character roles. Um, and because of her influence, I would sometimes get them. So it, and that started off a process of a, a, a series of, of very varied roles that I got to play, you know, serious comedy. I didn't actually get comedy calls until quite late on. Um, and then I can't remember how that happened, but I did a movie called Still Crazy, which required me to get laughs. And I realized that all those years of sitting watching comedians on TV, I think by osmosis, I'd somehow picked up some, uh, some of the rhythms that might get you a laugh. You picked up some of the rhythms, or do you not think that you have sort of some comedic gene that you were finally able to tap into? Uh, I don't know about that because I'm not, and I'm not being cute, but I'm not terribly self-aware. But I, and I don't know that I'm intrinsically funny, uh, but I do know that I picked up a couple of tips from, you know, there are practical things you can do. They're usually about pausing or or, or hitting the consonant, the consonant, there you are, I just messed it up. Uh, the consonant, the last word of the sentence very hard. Um, you know, there's little things that you pick up that you know, particularly doing them live. If you do jokes live in plays in the theater, that's a very good school because you you work out, you, it's, it, you know, you get the instant result. It either works or it doesn't work. Um, but maybe, maybe I am just a very funny guy, but I don't uh, experience it like that. <laughs> All right, um, Bill, I'm gonna bring up a, a bit of a touchy subject. Um, Folks may have noticed something when I played a clip from the movie. Uh, you, the star of the movie, weren't in it. Um, and we didn't choose any of the, the stirring clips of you as Mr. Williams in Living because you don't like watching or hearing yourself, even during interviews such as this. And as somebody who does this all the time, I, I totally get it. I never go back, rarely go back and look. I'm just wondering, is that true and and why? Let's have this discussion, like okay. mind to like mind. Okay, it's not really a touchy thing. I mean, I yeah, I used to sort of in the old days, I used to pretend that I'd seen it because I thought you you had to have you had to be seen to have seen it. But now I just come clean. I've got old enough. I I, I gave up watching myself a long time ago as a practical measure because it undermines me. I don't see what other people see. I used to think that, you know, either people were being kind when they complimented me on anything or else they were, you know, dumb. Um, but now I realize that there is, you know, I've become more or less comfortable with the huge disparity between what I think and what other people seem to think. Uh, if I, right now, for instance, with Living, people really, really like the movie and everything is fine. If I see the movie, I lose all that. It's stolen from me. And that's not, I know there's no logic, uh, it's no sense in it, but it's a, it's a, it's a fact. It, and, I've, and trust me, I've, I've worked on it, you know, and I've tried it both ways. And life is very, very sweet as long as I don't see anything. If I see stuff, life is not so good. So I'm working on that. And it's not because, um, I, you know, it was the same when I was young. Uh, and, and, and less complicated to look at. I didn't like it then, and it's not so much the way I look, although I'm not crazy about it, and it's not so much the way I sound, although, you know, I'm not crazy about that either. I, I, it's, it's the acting that gets to me. 
because huh. they you know they see all the bits of cowardice where I didn't quite pull something off or that default thing I always do when I can't pull something off. And then it occurred to me to cheer myself up recently. I thought, well, you know, when I go to see when I go to the movies and I see an actor I really like and they do that thing they always do. I'm always kind of happy that they do that thing they always do. You know, like if I go and watch Steve McQueen, who's one of my favorite actors of, of all time, he had certain physical uh, idiosyncrasies, which I would relish because, you know, I, would, I, I, I was waiting for them almost, you know, they, because that's Steve McQueen, you know. So and I thought and I'm not comparing myself to Steve McQueen, but I did. I did. It did, did occur to me that maybe those people that regularly watch me, they might think, oh, great. He's doing that thing he always does, you know, so maybe it's not such a bad thing. But I, I it's just I know it's some sort of dysmorphia. I know it's uh, you know, it's probably, you know, in the early days, people used to say you've got to watch in order to learn. I learn nothing except that I should probably do something else for a living. <laughs> That is that is ridiculous because you shouldn't be doing anything else for a living. But as I was listening to you, because I focused on not watching yourself, not listening to yourself, but it made me wonder. You know, I've talked to to other actors who won't read reviews, particularly stage actors. They won't even read re won't read reviews. Are you in that in in that uh, queue as well? Absolutely, never go near them. They're not for you. They're for other people that's it's bad magic i don't even if i if i'm told that i'm really good in that bit in the second act i don't want to know that i'm really good in that bit in the second act because i won't be good in that bit in the second act anymore because i'll be too wonderful i'll become too marvelous and i don't want to hear any bad news obviously because who needs it um and i uh, and also i don't believe you know i don't know who these people are necessarily and i don't or you know and i don't i don't need them in my head you know it's like it would be weird. It's like, you know, it's why I'm probably not on social media or anything. I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable, you know, I keep, uh, I keep a clean house. Um, I try. Bill, we're running out of time, but I can't, I can't talk, uh, have this conversation end without asking you about how it feels to be nominated for not just Golden Globe for Best Actor, but to have this Oscar buzz um, around you and your portrayal of Mr. Williams. It feels very, very, very good. I'm thrilled that the film has had this kind of rapturous reception. And uh, I feel I'm honored by the attention and I'm honored by these, uh, the speculation. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a tremendous development for us. It's, you know, it's hard enough making independent movies and having them and having people go to see them. Um, and uh, this is our one route to that. And I'm very, very, uh, you know, I'm very uh, moved by it, and I'm very, very grateful. And that's this not role the, uh... Came... Uh, <laughs> this role came to you after um, a fortuitous taxi ride that you had a while back. Have you shared a taxi lately with anyone um, that could lead to another great role? No, I haven't actually. Maybe I should. I should get people out for taxi rides. Uh, no, I haven't. But I've. Uh, there have been. You know, there's been some interest. The the year looks lively. We're 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 still in business. So, see how it goes. Bill Nye, Golden Globe nominated actor in the beautiful movie Living. Thank you so much for coming to Capehart on Washington Post Live. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's produced by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.